everybody. You may be seated. Uh, good to see everybody. So glad you are here. I want to first extend a welcome to all those at Tree Worth and those that are online in the sanctuary. And even more than that, I want to say hello to my dad who finally got home for the rehab hospital and is at home with my mom right now. Dad, I love you and I'm so glad that you're home. I miss you, Dad. So, and uh, all of you that are in the house, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, regardless of where you are joining us for worship, uh, thank you for coming. I'd love to meet you somehow. Uh, in the crossing, if you're in the house, if you're online, please shoot me an email. Let me hear from you. I'd love to connect and get to know just a little bit more about you. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them uh, to the book of Philippians. And I just want to encourage you to, to have your Bible when we go to worship. Uh, you can use your phone. You're welcome to do that. Uh, you're welcome to pick a Bible up when you walk in. If you're here on the site, you can pick one up when you walk in. Uh, we're just going to we're in a study here we're calling The Happy Life. We're pushing play again on The Happy Life. Uh, we've learned that people just are really struggling with being happy. Everybody, I, they say, I want to be happy. I want to be happy. And there's all this research, all these podcasts, all, all this study being done about what brings happiness and joy into people's lives. And so what we are doing here, we're examining that through the scriptures, through the book of Philippians. Uh, we just kind of, this is a book about joy, and so this is what we're learning from. Uh, what I want to make sure you get this before we ever get too far is that our God is pro-joy. The Bible encourages you and me to be joyful. The enemy loves it when you are miserable. The enemy wants you to be miserable. will do everything that he can to allow that to take place in your life. And so the plan here is what we're going to do is I I'm going to show you some things that you do, that I do, that makes our life miserable. And we're going to contrast that with what the Apostle Paul does that allowed him to have joy every day, 24-7, whatever was going on in his life. That's where we're going. That's what we're going to do, okay? Now, let's start off here in prayer. God, we're about to open up your word, and we know we can't even understand it without your Holy Spirit. It's the living word, God. It is your word, your word of love, your word of correction, your word of encouragement, uh, your word of uh, realigning us for us. So I ask you to speak, God. I ask you to heal. I ask you to touch. I ask you to give hope where hope is needed. And I ask God most of all today that, that anyone here in this time frame or whatever time frame they're, they're participating in this worship, that they, when they finish, they would be filled with a joy that the world can't touch, not even COVID. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So, we're going to read the scripture. I'm going to read a long text. I'm telling you, it's going to be a long section. And we're beginning at Philippians 1, verse 12, about 13, 14 verses. Here we go. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. And they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Now, the latter they do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? 
The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit in Christ Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will remain mean a fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith. So that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. All right, we're going to kind of walk through this and break some of this down. Here's the first thing that you and I do. All of us do this to be miserable. Here's the first one. I will wait to be happy till all my circumstances are right. Hey, I'm just going to wait till everything is just the way I want them. Now, if you're going to do that, how long are you going to wait? Forever. Now, here's what the Apostle Paul is saying in the opening verses of this text in chapter 12. He says, right in the middle, verse 12, he says, right in the middle, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me. If you have your Bibles, you might want to underline what has happened to me. He says it again over here in verse 19. What has happened to me? In other words, my circumstance, my situation, what has happened to me? I am in prison. I have been beaten. I have been flogged. I am enchained, and I want you to know that what has happened to me and how I feel about it. Now, you probably think how I feel about it. I'm kind of discouraged. You probably think I'm kind of low. You kind of think I'm kind of disappointed having a hard time with this. On the contrary, the end of verse 12, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Verse 13, as a result, hey, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, in the ancient world, if you were put into prison, so often it was a practice, you would actually be changed literally, physically, to the guard that was watching over you. So here's what he's saying. I'm in Rome. I have been chained to the palace guard, the secret service of Caesar himself. Now, I've been trying to get the gospel into Rome for a long time. I've been trying to get the gospel to Caesar. But in order to do that, I would have to do something to bribe someone. I would have to scratch somebody else's back, and they would scratch my back and do something kind of under the table so I could get in there to tell them about the gospel. But now I am chained to these prisoners. Really, those prisoners are chained to me, which means I can tell them about Jesus any time that I want to. Hey, you want to hear about Jesus? No, too bad. I'm going to tell you anyway. And that's the way, that is his mindset. That's how he sees what is going on in this present very challenging and difficult circumstance. And now I want you to make sure you get this. Somebody needs to write this down. Joy and courage is contagious. I want to repeat that. Joy and courage is contagious. Parents, 
When you find your family in a situation, you find in unbelievable, unwanted, desired circumstances, it is an opportunity for you to model and teach for your kids joy and courage. And they will need it in life. It's contagious. Here's what happens. He says, hey, in verse 14, hey, because of all this, because of my chains, because of what I'm experienced, not only, he says in verse 14, not only did the gospel get to Rome, not, not only are those people hearing about Jesus, the brothers and sisters around me, they're getting fired up. They're getting excited going, wow, if Paul can do that in those circumstances, I should be able to do that in my circumstances. That's what he's saying. Now, I want to go backwards to a couple of weeks ago when we started this series. We talked about something called the happiness paradox. A little reminder for you. That if the ultimate goal in my life is to be happy, I'll never be happy, ever. But if I pursue meaning, happy gets thrown in. If I pursue happy, if that's all I want to, if I say, I just want to be happy, I just want to be happy, I will not get either meaning or happy. Now, this morning, I'm going to introduce you to something called, there in your notes, called the happiness illusion. And it's very similar to the message point we just talked about. It said, I will be happy if my circumstances are what I desire. That's when I'll be happy. When everything in my life is lined up exactly like I want it to be, then I'm going to be okay. Now, church, all the happiness research says this. You and I are terrible, terrible at predicting what is going to make us happy. And we all do it. Hey, if I had their marriage, if I had a house like that, if I had a job like that, if I had a career like that, if I had their IQ, if I had their education, if I had their health care plan, if I had their retirement plan, if I had their body, <laughs> then I'd be happy. I mean, I'd just be content. I'd be happy forever. Now, the problem is none of those things don't make us happy. They do make us happy. They do. Here's the problem. They don't make us as happy as we think they will. It doesn't last as long as we think we will. We aren't living happily ever after just because we get that. And sometimes we think, well, there must be a problem with me. I am wanting the wrong things. Or I'm the only one who wants that, so there's something wrong with me. And I want to encourage you, no, you're not wanting the wrong things. You're not the only one. But there is something wrong with you and me. Now, this brings up a question, very important question. What is the difference, the connection between happiness and joy? What's the connection? Happiness is a feeling. That's what it is. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. It's kind of hard to define feelings. We all know what they are when we have them. Even you men in the house have feelings. And you know what it's like online when you have these feelings. But we don't know how to define it. It was hard to say. We know what they are when we experience them, but we have a hard time defining or articulating them. But we know that feelings have a push-pull effect. If they're pleasant, it pulls me toward the situation. If they're unpleasant, I push away from the situation. Broadly speaking, emotions or feelings can be put in two different categories. Positive emotions or feelings and negative emotions and feelings. Example of positive feelings, positive emotions. Happiness, uh, delight, curiosity, contentment, 
uh, pleasure, any sort of pleasure that I experience, uh, any sort of grateful experience of people's laughter and joy, man, all, all that sort of thing is, is a good emotion. Negative emotions, anger, somebody else's anger towards me, bitterness, revenge, jealousy, worry, anxiety, the feeling I have when the pressure is getting so intense that I just get all wound up. Now, all the emotions that you and I experience are powerful, and God gave them to you. But here's the problem for most of us. We define our life based on how well we feel. Somebody comes up to you and they say, how are you doing? We interpret it, how are you feeling? We don't ask anybody, how are you thinking? What are you thinking? Because what you think determines what you feel. Hang on to that. What you think impacts how you feel. Now this word, happy, comes from an old English word, hap, H-A-P, which is related to happen, happenings, happenstance to uh, haphazard, to perhaps. So happiness is a feeling, a good feeling, a good kind of feeling, when things are going the way I want them to go. But happiness is fickle. Here one time, gone the next, based on circumstances. Now, I'm going to bet there's nobody here uh, in worship here gathered with us this morning who would say that when you received a jury summons, you got happy. Anybody would say when you got a jury summons, all of a sudden, I'm happy. No, no. So I'm in a room with 140 unhappy people. And the clerk walks in because, and, and knows, knows that this is an unhappy experience. They know this is an interruption. And so walks in very wisely and says, hey, listen, guys, I know you all are very busy. You're busy people. You got busy lives. And a summons to serve on a jury is an interruption in your life. And I know you're not happy about it. So I'm going to tell you on the front end, thank you. Thank you. On behalf of Johnson County, on behalf of the state of Texas and the United States of America, thank you for being willing to serve in this jury pool. Now, what was he doing? He knew that there's nothing happy about serving on a jury, but that there's meaning. There could be meaning in serving on a jury. On the happy scale, there's nothing happy about serving, but it gives meaning, which can turn into something else. So he tells us a story. He says, there was this 95-year-old woman. We sent her a jury summons, and she had no transportation. She could not drive, and she had this sense of panic. She started calling everybody she could think of that could give us a ride to make sure she showed up on time for the jury. She finally got a hold of a son who reluctantly agreed to be late for work to get her there on time but not too early for to serve on the jury. So she walks in to the courtroom, and she is greeted there, and I say, did you call in advance to see if your jury pool was going to meet, you were going to be needed? She said, no, I didn't. It's because I just have one of those rotary phones, not one of those push-button things. Now, right now, there's some young people that are thinking, rotary, is that the new iPhone? Is there something I don't know? Am I behind? You have to talk to your parents. All she had was a rotary phone. So she said, no, I just had to find a way to get here. The clerk says, I want you to know this is no small thing. Serving on a jury is a big deal. It was to her. In our Constitution, it says we all have a right to a jury of our peers. It's called fairness and justice. 
And there are people right now all over the world, while you and I are in this room, they are risking their lives. So you and I might have the freedom and the privilege of serving as an American citizen on this jury pool. Thank you for being here. Now, I'm telling you, at the end of that, we were all fired up. And when it came to my turn to be asked a question about kind of, be, you know, the interview questions about whether or not you could be on the journey, they said, listen, if we define the defendant, the defendant is guilty, can you find them guilty? I said, are you kidding me? I'm a pastor. The Bible says we're all guilty. We're all sinners. We're all doomed. Throw them all. Lock, lock them all up. I did not get picked. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is 140 people got turned around because one person got convicted about the understanding of meaning. It's not all about happy. Now, there's something in the Bible called fruits of the Spirit. Paul talks about in Galatians 5, just to your left, if you have the, the flip hard copy Bible. I'm going to read them from verse 22. We'll put them on the screen. Here, I want you to notice what they are. If you've never heard them before, notice. He said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruits of the Spirit are not a feeling. They're a virtue. They're a condition of your life. It's not just a part of your personality and how you were made or created or designed. It is something consistent on the inside of you that reveals who you are at the core of your being. And the fruits of the Spirit pop up when life happens consistently. What pops up in you when life happens, when things are unfair and things are unjust and things are not right and you don't like it, the things that naturally pop up in you is either good fruit or rotten fruit. Love is not just a feeling. It's a fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says. That means love is this will to do good for somebody else. That's what it is. Love is a, is, a, is a will to do good for somebody else. It's this pervasiveness of being a loving person regardless of the circumstances in your life or what that person brings into your life. It's the ability, the essence of who you are as a loving person. If I idolize the feeling of love, if I idolize what it's like to be in love, I will never do the hard work of being someone who's pervaded by love, whose name is love, whose core is love. Because I'm never going to do the hard work of staying connected to God, whose name is love, who loves you and me regardless of the circumstances we bring into the world. If you idolize love, you will never truly become a loving person, as the Scripture says, is a fruit of the Spirit. It says peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Peace is not just a feeling. Dallas Willard puts it this way, a definition of peace. Can you put it on the screen, please? Peace is when my, ha, I'm sorry. You're on the screen, Shanda. <laughs> that doesn't work very well. 
Peace is with my soul. My life is under this constant straining and striving because I know in God how things are going to turn out. I mean, I know how it's going to turn out because of who God is. Now, there was this old song years ago, and it went like this. I got a peaceful, easy what? Feeling. Who did that song? Can we say praise be to God for the 70s and 80s rock music? I mean, some of the best music that's ever been written. And I know I'm showing my age. I got a peaceful, easy feeling. Now, if I idolize peace, I'm going to medicate myself. If I idolize peace, I'm going to avoid conflict. If I idolize peace, I'm not going to do the hard work of being someone who has peace in my soul that passes all understanding regardless of the circumstances that are in my life. I'll never know what it is to have the peace of Christ dwelling within me that the world cannot touch. Joy is different than happiness. Happiness is a feeling. Joy is this pervasive sense of well-being within my soul, within my being that nobody can touch, that nobody can take away, that nobody can tarnish, or nothing can rob me of it. It's not a feeling. The Scripture in the Old Testament talks about joy with a word that means joy and peace, and the word is shalom. You can't fabricate shalom. You can't create shalom. That peace and joy is something only that God can give. You can only have it through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's a gift that he gives to you in your soul. It's not a feeling. It's not, an emotion. It's not dependent upon your circumstances. It's not. See, Jesus modeled shalom. Go read about him. He taught about shalom. Go read in the scriptures what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. He taught it. He died for it. And God raised him from the dead to ensure your victory that even in death you can have joy deep within your soul that the world cannot touch. That is shalom. And Paul finds himself in prison. He is in chains. He has been beaten. But he would say the joy of the Lord is my strength and everything is okay. See, some of us, we... People ask us questions like this. Hey, listen, how how you doing? How you feeling? You go, well, I'm doing pretty well under the circumstances. You ever said that? Well, I'm doing pretty good under considering. Paul never said that after he met Jesus. Because he knew that God was over the circumstances. Paul wasn't living under the circumstances. He wasn't living under what was going on. He was over it because he knew Jesus was over it. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I will not falter. I will not crater. I will not cave. I will not panic. I will not give in. The joy of the Lord. See, the reason most of us here in this room and those that are online, while we're so bad at predicting what's going to make us joyful or happy, is that we underestimate the power of interruptions in our life. A little interruption because we're doing good and something happens we don't like and we just go, we just lose it, right? We just underestimate the power of the interruption. 
So I, I'm going home on, on a Tuesday night, a Tuesday a week ago. Be two weeks is coming Tuesday. Been here all day long and on, on staff, staff, staff retreat. I just want to go home and eat. By the time I get home, it's after rain. It's been a 12, 14-hour day. I'm My mind is mush. But I wasn't going to go home and just eat because it was cold outside because my wife had a flat tire before she left Dallas to come home that afternoon. Somebody there at their store repaired it with a little plug, but it didn't hold. So all the way home, the air is just slowly going out of her tire. And by the time she gets home, it is on the driveway, flat on the flitter. So I drive up at 8 o'clock at night, and there's that car just staring at me with a flat tire just all the way to the bottom. And she got to get up and go to work the next morning. I did not have a peaceful, easy feeling. <laughs> so I get out there, and I'm starting to change the tire, but I can't get the jack underneath it. It's so low on the ground, you can't get a jack underneath it to raise it up. I got to get two jacks back and back and forth, back and forth to finally get that truck up. And have you ever tried to lower a tire with a Tahoe, with getting that little machine all together, and everything is so frustrating, you're cold, it's tired, late at night, I'm hungry, and I just get fed up and go, I cannot believe I'm having to do this now. No peaceful, easy feeling. I want to look in the camera. And, Dad, I thought of you. And I thought, Dad, about how many times late at night you and I have changed a tire, a flat tire, after you had worked all day counseling and ministry and visiting people in the hospital, and you had to come home and change, change the flat tire, and I was helping you, Dad. I remember, Dad, you saying, Rick, the best place to have a flat tire is at home in your own driveway. And you just started singing. You just started smiling and singing, Dad, and singing joy to the Lord. And I said, you know what? I can do that too. I don't have to complain. I can serve my wife with joy. And I just started singing. And in 15 minutes, that thing was fixed. Church, I'm telling you, if you wait till your circumstances are all lined up, you will never know happiness and you will never know joy. It's not, God, why am I in these circumstances? God, why is this happening to me? It's, God, where are you in the middle of this circumstance? What can you do with me? What can, can you bless me? Can you use me to bless somebody else? Can you use me to inspire somebody else in the middle of this that I just don't like? Number two, keep moving with me. We're going to pick it up. Here's how I made myself misery. I compare myself to other people. Now, I'm not going to read this, but just notice in verses 15 through 18, you have these people that are comparing themselves to Paul. Uh, there's some on the inside of the church, but the ones on the outside of the church, they're kind of loving Paul, but on the inside, they're going, man, I can't believe Paul, their envy and rivalry, it says right there in verse 15. I can't believe Paul's got this great ministry and all these people are doing this and they're growing and everything like that. Man, look at my ministry. My ministry's not doing anything. I got nothing going on. And they're comparing themselves. God, why, why does Paul have this? Why can't I be Paul? Why does Paul have, why do I have to be me? Why can't I be him? That's what they're saying. Comparing themselves. Now, church, we all do this. We compare our marriages to one another. Man, if your marriage is easy and your marriage looks better and your marriage looks healthier, I go, man, man, I wish, I feel miserable because, man, their marriage, their marriage is so awesome. Man, ours is nothing compared to that. Wow, what's that, man? Man, if I only had their salary. If I only had their IQ, if I only had their education, if I only played an instrument like that or sing like that, right? 
if I only had their body, whew, if I only had that car, that house, we do all this comparing. As if we think that, man, when you get stuck in that, you are stuck into a cycle that's going to bring nothing but misery into your life. Uh, there was this woman who died, and she went to heaven. When Peter met, met her at the gate, and she was so excited to be there. She said, can I come in? He said, yeah, you can come in, but you got to spell a word. What's the word? Spell love. She said, I got it, L-O-V-E. Come on in. She's in. Uh, sometime later, Peter has to go somewhere else to take care of some issues. And said, hey, could you watch the gate for me? She said, sure, I got the gate. So she's watching the gate, and wouldn't you know it, her husband, her widowed husband shows up at the gate. She says, ha, ha. How are you doing? He says, well, tell you the truth, been going pretty good. Uh, you know that hot young nurse that was taking care of you uh, when you died? I married her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I won the lottery right after you died. Won the lottery. Uh, we, we sold that little bitty beautiful house that you and I built together. And, man, we built a big, gigantic, gargantuan one. It's like a plantation house. It's, it's, it's amazing. And um, uh, we've been traveling a lot. In fact, we were skiing in the Swiss Alps. When I fell, had this accident that brings me right here to the gates of heaven. Oh, by the way, uh, can I come in? Said, yeah, you just got to spell one word. Okay, great. Tim, what is it? Nacogdoches. <laughs> I've never met a happy, jealous, envious person. who's comparing themselves to other people's life and wishing they had that. And Man, I would just be happier. I would be less miserable if they were more miserable. They did some research. And Stanford did this hypothesis. And here's what they believe. Their hypothesis was that people who are unhappy, they compare up. Look at them. They have more money. They have more prestige. They have more influence. They have more education. They have more of anything. They more, that, the, that, half, that unhappy people compare up and happy people compare down. Oh, my goodness. Their life, they, they, don't, they only have this. They only have that. They only have that. And they feel bitter about themselves. Here's, you know what they found with the research? Happy people, they don't compare themselves with anybody. With anybody. When they see folks that are ahead of them in anything, man, I'm just, man, that is awesome. That is incredible. That is great. Good for you. That is so, and someone less than them who has less, man, how can I encourage you? How can I help you? How can my, how, how can I lift up? They just, it's happy people. So here's what I encourage you to do this. Here's an assignment this week. Anybody in your life that you envy, you're kind of jealous of, you kind of had this, you're kind of comparing yourself, man, I wish my life was like, or a company or an organization that's doing better than yours, a classroom, if you're a teacher, whatever it would be, pray for them. Just pray for God to bless them. Pray for God to lift them up. Pray for God to use them. Stop the comparison game. It's a loser script. Make you miserable. Thirdly, I will go it alone. I'll be miserable. You know, I'm just going to do this by myself. You would just rather just push everybody away. I can handle this and do this all on my own. Now, in the text right here, people had this understanding that Paul was such a cranky person that nobody wanted to be around him. That he was isolated, kind of lived his life all by himself. But when you read the scripture, it's not really that true. Look what Paul says up here in verse 3 if you have your Bibles. I'm going to read it. He's writing to the Philippians. Hey, I thank my God every time I remember you. 
How do you think it make them feel when they say, man, when I think about you, I, I just thank God for you. And verse 4, and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And when I think about you, I, I just have joy in my soul. Uh, down here in verse uh, Verse 7, it says, it is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart. Verse 8, God can testify, I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, let me tell you, how do you think those people felt when they read that letter when Paul was talking? He was including them in. In fact, he says right here, and this is my prayer, brothers and sisters, down here in verse 14, brothers, and he calls them brothers and sisters in verse 12 and verse 14. Hey, we're like brothers and sisters. There was relationship. He didn't do it alone. Some of you are trying to do life alone. And you're miserable. They did research for longevity. People who live the longest. And here was the hypothesis. People who live the longest are people who have someone always taking care of them. The opposite they found out was true. People who live the longest or people who have someone to take care of, people to care for, people they pour their life into. Why? Because it gave their life meaning and purpose and a reason to exist. And it brought them joy. The Apostle Paul is very clear here in the text. We do this thing together. I'm going to give you a magic number. Here's the magic number. Somebody needs to write it down. Five to one. That's the magic number. Five to one. All the mental health and relationship experts, here's what they say. In any relationship you have in your life, five positive, encouraging, uplifting words for every one negative, discounting sort of word or hard word, you have a chance of having a healthy, strong relationship. Healthy, strong relationship. But if it's not five to one, if it's four to one or three to one or two to one, your relationship is at risk. I don't care what kind of relationship it is. There is this marriage therapist up in Chicago. He puts it up on his website. He says, listen, with 9% accuracy, I can predict if a marriage is going to make it or not in less than five minutes by just listening to the conversation between the couple and how they talk about each other and the words that come out, they describe the other. Which are you? Are you a five-to-one-er or a one-to-fiver? Bosses, team leaders in the workplace, principals, teachers, coaches, whatever your leadership position is in the world. Are you a one to five or a five to one? Here's what I know. Where it's five to one, you have maximum performance by people in your, in your classroom, on your team. Whether it's business, whether it's school, whether it's medicine, you name it. But when you have the opposite, and it's one to five or it's two to five, you have a deficit. And people perform way down here. This is true in families. This is true in parenting. This is true in church life. So here's what I challenge for you this week. I want you to go home and observe your communication patterns. Are you the person who's in a habit of always being critical, always pointing out what is wrong, always putting your finger on the negative, the bad thing, kind of a, putting a glaring spotlight? Or are you someone who's looking for the good, building up, encouraging? Now, please understand this. A healthy relationship does not mean it's all just sweet and beautiful, and syrupy. There's something in the Bible called admonition. That's when you speak a hard truth to somebody that you love, not for the purpose of tearing them down, but for getting to the truth so you can repair. Healthy people have hard conversations. They do.
healthy marriages, healthy parenting. But if it's one to five, not five to one. So some of you here, I want to challenge you to move from isolation and move into healthy relationships. Uh, you heard Jeff say uh, when he was doing the welcome to you is that we have something here come with small groups at Pathways. And if you're someone who's coming to this church and doing it all alone, I want to encourage you to consider going out here in the crossing. You can do it virtually or online and stop at the tables if you're on site to our little tables. Say, hey, listen, I want to learn about being a small, small group. Uh, we're going to start something new during the season of Lent. Our message series is going to be life-changing words. I'm going to do a little small lesson, video lesson. We're going to put it into your home with your small group. Uh, you can learn together and grow together. If you're a cranky person, if you're a cranky person, just go to the tables or online and say, hey, I'm a cranky person. Put me with five of the health happy people. <laughs> and, and they will make you happier, and you can help bring them back into reality, right? Because we got some happy that are too happy around here. They're not dealing with reality. And so, uh, but please, consider doing that after worship online. We, we'd love for you to do that. Here's the final point uh, that I make myself miserable. I will adopt pessimism as my life mindset. I will adopt pessimism as my life mindset. Now, you're going to think I'm crazy, but people do that. I know of people who choose, choose on purpose to be pessimistic. They do. Now, the researchers, they distinguish the difference between big optimism and little optimism. And little optimism is little hopes. I have little hopes. I just hope I get a close parking space at worship to this morning. I just hope somebody talks to me. I hope nobody talks to me. I hope the message is not very long. Sorry. <laughs> I hope I don't get COVID. That's little optimism. Big optimism is big picture. I hope COVID ends for the world in 2021. That's what I hope for. I hope that every day God uses me to bless another person, that they would know the ha great love of God in their life, that God would use me regardless of my circumstances, that the gospel of God's love would come. That's a big hope, big optimism. Optimism is important. Optimistic people are healthier. Optimistic people endure. They push through hard times. Optimistic people have more friends. But you can be overly optimistic. That's a negative. I can drink and I can drive and be safe. I can eat whatever I want. And nothing will ever happen to my body that will be dangerous or harmful. That's over-the-top optimism. Not true. It's got to be granted some sense of reality. But the Apostle Paul here He's got a mindset that defies the word optimism. The word optimism is not strong enough. So real quickly here, I'm going to bring this together here. You're going to see that the Apostle Paul, he creates a word in Philippians chapter 1 that does not exist. He puts together three words to describe his optimism. It's not big optimism. It's not overly optimistic. It's mindless optimism. He takes three words, head, strain, and stretch. The Greek words for head, strain, and stretch, he puts them together to form a word to describe what it feels like for him to get up in the morning. And let me describe it like this. It's like a runner who's running the race. They see the finish line, and they close their eyes to everything around them. They just look straight at the finish line. They're leaning their head, every cell of their body straining forward to get to that finish line because they know when they get there, there's going to be a joy that is unexplainable. That's what he's saying. And then he adds another word. The word is hope. Here's what it says. I eagerly expect, that's the word in the Greek, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, 
who have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. Now, what do you do with a guy like that? How do you put him in prison? How do you stop him? How do you stop a guy like that? You don't stop him. Here's why. He is held by Christ. He is inspired by Christ. He is loved by Christ. He follows Christ. He serves Christ. He is inspired by Christ. Christ is his magnificent obsession. He believes completely in the life, that his whole life is viewed through the lens of Christ. All of it. That is his joy. And then he raises a question, a very interesting question. He said, the question is, verse 18, what does it matter? What does it matter? I got problems. I'm in chains. I've been beaten. What does it matter? Who cares? That's a little Greek word, tisgar. You know what that word is? So what? Big deal. Who cares? Whatever. So here's your homework. This week, when interruptions come, when life falls apart, and it will, things will go wrong. If you've not figured that out yet, things will go wrong. Here's what I want you to say. Big deal. So what? What does it matter? For me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain. Have a flat tire in the driveway when you get home late at night. Big deal. So what? Who cares? It can be repaired. It can be replaced. For me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain. What does it matter? The kid spills the milk again. The kids are fighting again. They refuse to go to bed again. You're about to explode. So what? Big deal. Who cares? What does it matter? For me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain. The pastor, he preaches way too long. Big deal. So what? What matters? We'll send him to pastor rehab school in the Grand Caymans. <laughs> we'll stop that. <laughs> in prison, in chains, in failure, in disappointment, in quarantine, in COVID, in depression, in death. So what? Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was resurrected, that the kingdom of God is coming to planet earth, and the kingdom of God dwells in me. And because of that, I have joy. And joy is not a feeling. Joy is this pervasive sense of well-being that God is with me, and he is in me, and he will not abandon me. Joy is my only response to the resurrection, and joy is my expected, eager expectation and hope that God is doing good in my life, regardless of what happens to me, period, period. I'm going to invite you to stand. If you're online, you can stand. I want to invite you to stand. I want to invite you to stand. You know what that means, church? That means in death, in despair, in darkness, and depression. Why does it matter? Because for me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain, and that is joy. Won't you pray with me? There are some of you here, your life is so good and so rich. You are blessed with relationships. You've got a great job. You have a good retirement. You have a healthy, you're healthy, you have your health. 
COVID's not touched you or you pushed through it. Some of you, you have a health care plan in your life. I mean, things are just so good. Don't take it for granted. Just stop right now and say, God, in humility, I say thank you for the circumstances in my life. I don't deserve them. They're a gift. And I thank you. If there are some of you here right now who can hear my voice, you're in a prison. You're in a prison of loneliness. You're in a prison of fear. You're in a prison of COVID. You're in a, you're a quarantine prison. You're worried. You're grieving. You've lost so much in your life. I want you to hear the word of God for you right now. So what? Big deal. Why does it matter for you to live is Christ and for you to die is gain? So God, we thank you for the magnificent so what? That because of the bloodstained cross and the empty tomb, there is a joy in each of us that the world cannot touch. And we praise you in the name of the joy giver himself, Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Amen and amen. All right, next week, the secret of the happy life. I tell you right now, but you wouldn't come back. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>